I think we've, we've fallen into moral idiocy. I think people have been co-opted. No, no, there's a big problem in America with junkie dogs. They only eat two things, homework and prescriptions for budget them. That's it. How does this work, Greg? We got uh, two separate and, uh, and diametrically opposed points of view. Hey, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry. It's time for the February issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg is in, in Ann Arbor. Greg, is it like 90 degrees below zero there? <laughs> You're close, Rick. You're close. It actually dropped like 50 or 60 degrees in 12 hours. I mean, I'm, you, know, you realize if, if the pilgrims had landed in San Diego, the rest of the country had been unexplored. They, they would have sent one guy out who discovered Minnesota in the winter, and he'd come back and say, nah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to know what it's like here today, yeah. Greg. But I'm going to tell you anyway. It is. Yeah, uh, I sure will. Yeah. It's, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's about 75 degrees, um, so I'm, i got to put a little, uh, uh, get it into my shorts here. Uh, and we're having, I told you off air, we're having some serious, serious yard work done, and hopefully the uh, constructors are going to eat lunch now and uh, not be doing their jackhammering and cinder block cutting. Right, you know, well, yeah. that's the famous Casa Bucata we've, we've all heard about over the years. And you're right, we have bad weather but we don't have Jerry Brown and we do have a balanced budget. So I think it's fair trade. Let's move on. Hey, you know, before you get into that, our our budget is now balanced because they, uh, the taxpayers did something really, really strange. They followed the recommendations of Jerry Brown and raised all kinds of taxes. Um, it, the sales tax is higher. The marginal income tax is higher. And in fact, one of these golfer guys, said, I'm moving out of this state, and he got a lot of heat for that. Was that I think it was Phil Mickelson basically said, I live here, and I'm, it's killing me, and I'm out of here. I but think it, you guys should pay all the taxes you want. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's, let's get started. I, we've got a lot of stuff to cover here. Um, the first topic, I think, is kind of interesting, and it does have substantial medical legal consequences. Our friend, the American College of Emergency Physicians, has developed Be nice now. Be nice now. <laughs> I was the president of that. Yes, that a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, um, they've come up with a new TPA policy for stroke, which is being published in the February issue of the Annals, and um, which upsets the apple cart rather significantly compared to their prior uh, policy, which basically said that uh, TPA is not the standard of care for stroke. But let me read you what they came up with. Um, there is some pushback on this because I don't know about you, Greg, but I wasn't asked my opinion about uh, this whatsoever. And uh, I think it brings up the issue about whether major policy decisions by the college should be sent out to the membership for some commentary before it's voted on. Because I think there's going to be a lot of docs who are not very happy about how this came about. But in any case... Rick, let me just tell you, as, as we're getting going here, I know a bunch of docs, good docs, our friends who sent in letters, extensive letters talking about the weakness uh, of this science. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think's going on here. I think we've, we've fallen into moral idiocy. I think people have been co-opted. And over time, people are just tired of the fight about this drug. After all, since this came out, there's been no new publications 
that I know of in the last 20 years. Uh, there are 10 head-to-head studies. Eight of them are negative. Two of them are questionably positive. And everybody's now hanging their, their hat on ECAS-3, and I just think it's wrong. But go ahead. Well, I'm glad you have uh, so little opinion about this. Um, one of the issues is uh, obviously Jerry Hoffman was not asked to be involved, but uh, you you can <laughs> understand why that that may yeah. have happened. Well, yeah, he he's a, he's not asked to a lot of social events, and I and I think that uh, uh, you know it, it's it's sad that some of us have become associated with a certain position here. It's not about us. It's not about Jerry. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the science. And I, th- I think that unfortunately, this got tagged with people's personalities and not the pure science. But maybe I'm wrong here. Well, in any case, let me read you the uh, recommendation. This is level A. It doesn't get any higher than that. It says, yeah. in order to improve functional outcomes. Now that the preamble there is that this stuff must improve functional outcomes. It says, in order to improve functional outcomes, IVTPA should be offered to acute ischemic stroke patients who meet NINDS inclusion slash exclusion criteria and can be treated within three hours after symptom onset. So that's number one. Yeah, by and- the way, just as an old English major, uh, you shouldn't word it that way, but that's okay. And what, and, and the key operative word here is should be offered. That yes. doesn't mean promoted. That means offered. And, and this is going to be the, the, the genesis of multiple lawsuits. Trust me on this. Go well, ahead. Well, I think it is perfectly reasonable for a doctor to offer this when, and, and say, here are the pros and here are the cons, and they give some factual information. But the preamble of the sentence is, in order to improve functional outcomes, if they didn't say that, you know, I think it would be, you know, a little safer. Um, the next part deals with this three to three to four and a half hour business. So this is level B recommendation. So it's not as hot. It says, in order to improve functional outcomes, there's that phrase again, which is the killer phrase. Yeah. IVTPA should be considered in acute ischemic stroke patients who meet ECAS three inclusion slash exclusion criteria and can be treated between three to four and a half hours after symptom onset. Now, there's an asterisk but, there. Yes, there's an asterisk. Go <laughs> ahead, read the asterisk. The uh, effectiveness of TPA has been less well established in institutions without the systems in place to safely administer the medication. By now, the way, for those of you who don't aren't familiar with ECAS-3, look it up. All of those patients, and it's a small number of patients, were treated at the uh, Engelheim, whatever they are, uh, clinics in Austria. These weren't at hospitals. These weren't at named hospitals. And uh, believe me, there's some manipulation of data here. The other thing is, Rick, do you know why they they, uh, stopped it at 4.5 hours? I don't because know. Because when why. they look, yeah, because when they ran the data me. and looked at the five hours and the five and a half and the six hour, they were all negative results. So well, they you know, picked I, a convenient time. I remember the Atlantis trial basically was stopped prematurely when they took it out to six hours because it was killing people. Exactly. Uh, now, let me read you the last sentence here. 
Note, within any time window, once the decision is made to administer IV TPA, the patient should be treated as rapidly as possible, okay, and as of this writing, TPA for acute ischemic strokes in the three to four and a half hour window is not FDA approved. Now, that's important because the Heart Association says, you know, give it. I think this was also written in conjunction with the American Academy of Neurology. So they're, they, they both uh, have endorsed this policy. But I looked it up and the FDA has actively chosen not to endorse it between the three to four and a half. It's not that they, we, well, we haven't gotten to it yet uh, and, and we're, we'll, we'll check it out. No, no, they did get to it. And they, apparently it's their view that the evidence is not strong enough for them to um, allow these drug companies to say, okay, you can advertise it from three to four and a half hours. So there is a conflict here between the FDA and these other organizations that say, okay, st stretch it out to four and a half hours. By the way, all of you uh, stroke fans out there, if you give this drug and there's a bad outcome, the line that's going to be read to you in court is, as of this writing, TPA for acute ischemic stroke in the three to 4.5 hour window is not approved. How would you like to go defend that case? Yeah, so this is an off-label use. FDA has said, we're not ready to um, approve this. And yet you're going out there on some thin ice where there's, you know, 12% in the NINDS, 12% got better, 6% got worse, 84%, you know, the re remainder, nothing happened. But Greg, you're going to tell us about, there's a coincidence here, a very strange oh, coincidence. It's, it's an unbelievable coincidence. And uh, what is this coincidence? Well, AAEM, you know, there's only two organizations in emergency medicine. There's a big one, ASAP, the slightly smaller one, AEM, came out with a new policy in December 2012 issue of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. And it says, quote, TPA is an effective treatment for stroke when given in prepared stroke centers. Uh, emergency physicians and hospitalists treating stroke patients with TPA need to have the necessary resources in place and a specific plan for timely care of patients with acute stroke. So the, the beginning of this sentence is the one that is disturbing. TPA is an effective treatment for stroke. Soon as they say that, man, it's like you're committed. They, they said it works. Right, um, right, exactly. And as I, again, I haven't seen another study Rick, you're you're the literature guy. You're no, the I'm study not. guy. Yeah, <laughs> you Hoffman know this stuff. On this. Hoffman Hoffman sleeps on this stuff. But the I, he eats and sleeps it. He drinks it. But I haven't heard from Jerry, and I certainly haven't heard from you that there's a new study a after ECAS three. Is there? Yes or no? No, I think that this is a viewed as. I think there's going to be a substantial pushback by the members of ASEP and hopefully by the members of AAEM because this is a major, major policy change. And, and the medical legal consequences is, as you know, the vast majority of lawsuits for TPA and stroke is failure to uh, give this stuff or failure to offer to give this stuff. And in the past, this policy by ASEP was trotted out to say, no, this is not the standard of care. It was a powerful part of the argument why physicians should not be 
you know, losing cases over failure to give this stuff. And basically, this has been pulled away from us. Pulled The rug has been pulled out now, and this major element of the defense of physicians who don't give it is gone. Oh, it's it, absolutely. And if you look at that committee of ASEP that, that did the work on this, everybody on there is a member of FERN, and uh, which, if, you, if those of you listening don't know it, that, that particular organization is funded by drug companies. Uh, and I, I, think we have a, I think we have a moral and ethical problem here. But what we really need to get to, Rick, is why are we talking about this on Risk Management Monthly? And because we've got to give our listeners some direction. And I think that you need to be aware of what it says. You ought to know what the new policy is, because nothing makes you look worse in court than being being ignorant of what's currently happening. But by the same token, you have to take and look at the situation in front of you and and offer the therapy and say, these are the ways this is the way it can hurt you. This is what might help. You, so, you may fit into it. You may not fit into it. But I think the importance of this is it is now a big enough issue that you can't avoid discussing it with the family and the patient. Oh. Um, and, and it's going to be a big issue if you don't bring this question up. Well, I don't think there's any question, Greg, that uh, patients who are having strokes, that the option of TPA should be discussed with them. I don't I don't doubt that whatsoever. I think it's fair. I am upset about these organizations who say, no, this is FDA approved. And as a result, we don't need to ask permission, which is, you've, you've heard those cases. That is utterly ridiculous. Yes, but, yes. But, it, but in any case, my problem is that both of these start out by saying it's effective treatment. And why would you therefore not give an effective treatment, doctor? Well, I, I think we've beaten this this small puppy uh, enough. Yes, we have. Uh, it, what what our listeners have to know is there is a philosophic shift in the two organizations that represent emergency medicine. And if you don't think this isn't going to get shoved up your nose, uh, you're not you're not thinking broadly enough on this issue. Enough said, Rick. Let's right. go on to the next breaking news. The next breaking news is really uh, just because it's in my craw. <laughs> it's got really nothing to do with risk management, I don't think. Anyway. Oh, you're not telling me, Rick, that Risk Management Monthly would reflect the internal prejudices of its, uh, of its no, so uh, we're authors. Gonna, okay, go ahead. We're going to make this quick. Mayor Bloomberg in New York had a news conference, and on uh, I think it was January 28th. Oh, no, no, no. It was January 10th. Yeah. Uh, of this year, he basically had this news conference with uh, these people standing behind him in which he said that in the municipal hospital emergency departments in New York City, uh, the physicians would no longer be allowed to give out uh, Vicodin or Percodan or Oxycodone or any of those jobbers for, with, for more than a three-day supply. Um, and he also said that um, – uh, Opiates uh, and all destroyed, lost, or stolen prescriptions will not be able to be refilled in the emergency departments. So well, that, what about if you have a dog that eats your opiate prescription? Sorry, like you Charlie. Realize, you have, you oh, no, go, there's a big problem in America with junky dogs. They only eat two things, homework and prescriptions for Vicodin. That's it. 
So, right. So when you basically lose your prescription, do not go to a municipal hospital in New York. Go to some other hospital. This is, um, this is kind of like regulation from the top, which is really, I think, problematic. There are some physicians who support this, uh, but I think there's many, many, many others who say, listen, I need the flexibility to be able to give longer periods of opiates if I think it's necessary. The implication is, well, you only need three days because you're going to get follow-up. Who's going to follow you up if you have no doctor, no insurance, no nothing? Uh, who's going who's to do that follow-up? Well, listen, it, let's be fair to, to the discussion that's going on because, uh, as you and I are both aware, online – there's been a stream of consciousness on this, uh, on this discussion. What's the real issue? Uh, those of us who are libertarians say, you know what? Doctors ought to be able to decide whether you need three days worth, five days worth. If you've got a broken forearm, you may yeah. need five days worth of medicine. That Absolutely. ought to be my decision. Uh, David Newman, a guy who is very bright and who I, who I, he's in New York, I respect him tremendously, has said this. He says, now I've got a tool to say they, the great they, they won't let me. Uh, so that way he doesn't have to have the patient mad at him. Uh, he could say, go right to the mayor. Go talk to the mayor because he won't let me. They'll take me out and beat me if I give you more than three days worth of medicine. Yes, and but that's, I think that that's really fundamentally a cop out. Um, all well, kinds of course of it is. All kinds of doctors want to be able to say, I'm not allowed kind of thing. Uh, ASEP came out with an opiate policy, which was rather restrictive. And I think that the doctors who are hard asses about opiates basically say, hey, this is fabulous. I can say, hey, it's not, I'd, I'd give you a month worth of this stuff, but I'm not allowed to. But in fact, they were the initiators of this. Yeah, uh, my, nobody's nobody's going to get killed by, you know, three or four or five days worth of Vicodin from an ER, for Christ's sake. I'm two sorry. Statements. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that. Cut that yeah, out, yeah, I, I guess, whatever. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Uh, understand this. To those guys who need the government to help them practice, my suggestion is grow a pair and learn to say the words, no, I'm not treating this. Secondly, we have lots of things now which help us. I don't know an emergency department that doesn't have an online system that will tell you what that patient's been taking over the last year. I mean, all we got to do is run the name. And and uh, we we can tell here in Michigan from three states around what you're what you've been taking, uh, and I, I think in in all fairness, I think emergency docs get pretty good at deciding who has an opiate problem, and who is in, is in there with, with with a medical condition that yeah we'd give pain medicine for. I mean I do see patients who genuinely have pain, and and I don't want to throw all of those patients out the window. Uh, just because of the abuse problem. I, I don't think this, I think this is big brother, i.e. the government, watching us a little too closely. Wasn't Bloomberg the guy who said you can't have more than 16 ounces of Coke? Well, yeah, in a, now in a glass? You, can't, yeah. you can't be drinking your Vicodin with a 16-ounce Coke back well, in no. New York. If you can get Vicodin, you can drink it with a 16 ounce, but God help you if it's 17 ounces. <laughs> and then they, they asked the mayor, they said, well, what if he goes in and buys two 16 ounce Coke? Well, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, you know what? At some point in time, uh, we all don't need another mother. I had a wonderful mother. Uh, she did a, she, well, she didn't do that good a job. She had me, but, but the, the bottom line is 
uh, how much are we going to let them dictate what we do? And there are perfectly good, reasonable docs on each side of this issue. But for risk management monthly listeners, just be aware that, that this is frustration coming out of the government, that they don't know what to do about the problem. And so they're going to take uh, a, a, an answer, uh, which really makes no sense. Hey, listen, I got one quickie here, uh, and then we'll move on. On January 28th in the Wall Street Journal, there was a story about an FDA advisory committee that voted 19 to 10 to have oxycodone and all of its cousins move up from a Schedule 3 drug to a Schedule 2 drug. The fact is that that matters zero to emergency physicians. The only difference between 3 and 2 as the numbers get smaller, the drugs are considered to be more and more dangerous. Schedule one is like LSD. Uh, and, and I looked at my license. I can prescribe two to five. So this, this doesn't affect this. The only thing is that you cannot call in a prescription over the phone for a schedule two drug. It does require a, a real prescription. That's, for us, I think the uh, only difference that I, that I, I saw. Okay. Well, no, there's, there's something else, Rick. I think that Schedule 3 and Schedule 2, there's a difference in how many and how long these That's prescriptions true. can last. And so uh, it, it, this may not be illogical uh, to, to reduce the amount of time. I mean, uh, somebody made the, you know, there's always somebody cute on TV saying, well, the problem in, of druggies in America is, is the emergency departments because they write for the most number uh, they give out the most number of prescriptions. Well, that's tr true, but when it comes to the number of pills, you and I are writing for, you know, 12 Vicodin. Yeah. Uh, some of the family docs are writing six-month renewable prescriptions. We were 17th on the list when it came to the number of pills written. The, I, I don't want emergency docs to get into the idea that you are the cause of addiction in the United States. Oh, no. We're, I, 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 I didn't, didn't cover happen. that. You mentioned about the duration. That doesn't relate really to emergency medicine. Yes, there's a difference. In the Schedule 2, you can only write for three months' worth of the drug. In Schedule 3, you, doctors can write for six months' worth of the drug, which is, you know, doesn't affect us. Greg, you're up next. You've got a story that you wanted to tell us about a doctor who was um, expulsed from ASAP. Well, <clears throat> Again, while we're on our in our craw uh, phase of this, let me just say that in the um, last issue of ASEP News, there is a little tiny notice, and you have to get out your magnifying glass to read it, but I will read it. The Board of Directors of the American College of Emergency Physicians issued on a, a, October 11, 2012, a disciplinary action and a determined letter expelling, let me point that word again, expelling Paul D. Blaylock, MD, JD, BFD, FACEP, for violation of ASAP's expert witness guidelines for the specialty of emergency medicine and the code of ethics of emergency physicians. Now, to my knowledge, we've sent out, you know, eight, 10 uh, letters of censure. That comes from the board, but they didn't kick him out of the college. Uh, Paul Blaylock got kicked out of the college. That's big time, Rick. I've opposed him before, um, and we've 
one every time, of course. But the the bottom line is uh, emergency physicians should not be a bunch of wimps who don't take action against people whose testimony under oath really doesn't comply with the standard of care. That's what this is about. And I think that it is, um, I, I think I applaud the board uh, for uh, taking a, a real action. Now, whether there's going to be lawsuits and this, that, and anything back and forth, I don't know. But they have to do something about egregious testimony. They have to. And uh, this is the first guy that I know of who actually got kicked out of the college. Hey, I have to bring up something that uh, one of my ultra-liberal friends uh, concocted. What about egregious testimony in support of doctors? Who uh, deals w with that? This well, is a this is a one-sided process where doctors um, pick on doctors who are talking uh, on on behalf of the plaintiffs, where their testimony is believed to be egregious. But I got to think, Greg, that there are doctors testifying on behalf of physicians who give testimony that's egregious. And where do, where where do those people get sanctioned? Well, actually, actually, there is a place for them to get sanctioned, and that is the ethic committee of ASAP will accept letters complaining about doctor testimony on either side. So if a plaintiff's counsel representing someone sends a letter to ASAP, the board is obligated to have the ethics committee review that testimony as well. Now, Rick, from a practical matter, it's probably not going to happen much. In fact, <laughs> Tell me I'm about not, it. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it's <laughs> happened at all. But I, I think what we have here is we have, a, we have an intellectual abscess that needs draining. The membership is tremendously influenced by the lawsuit climate. In fact, they're irrationally influenced by it. Most of the time, we don't get sued. Truth of the matter is most of the time when we screw up, we don't get sued. But, I, you know, I can't tell you the number of people as I go around who say, you know, I'm sorry, I chose this, chose this profession. I, I have this feeling that they're out to get me. And I think that anything we can do to make, to kind of take that away would be a good thing. Okie dokie. Now let's get on to um, another standard of care issue, which I think is going to be really, really, really interesting. Greg, you're familiar with the papers that talk about uh, out of Canada, where they talk about if you suspect a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and the CT is negative, and you've done the CT within six hours of the onset of symptoms, your workup is over. Um, in the United States, the standard of care, I think, is that you need to do a lumbar puncture in these cases. The uh, Canadian stuff uh, has been recently supported by a Danish paper, or a Dutch paper, which we just put into the abstracts. And you know, and I know, some people who fully embrace the conclusions of the Purry and et al. studies uh, regarding this. Greg, so my question to you is, how does this work out uh, where there's di uh, diametrically opposed points of view uh, that are now supported by the literature, at least, uh, at least you know, at least the, 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 the recent studies that we, we're talking about here. Um, how does this work, Greg? We got... Uh, two separate and, uh, and diametrically opposed points of view. Rick, this, this deals with a question which we deal with all the time, which is what is the reasonable probability? 
if you look at the Canadian work, if you look at the Dutch work, you would say you would miss a subarachnoid hemorrhage between one in 400 and one in 700 cases. Is that by the, by the standards of the current medical legal community, is that good enough? And I'll ask you the question, uh, would you fly on an airline that had a one in 700 bad landing rate? And I don't think anybody here would. Uh, but it's what the society is willing to accept as an acceptable miss rate. You know, if, if you wander around in Canada, you know, I live here on the Canadian border. Uh, yeah, there's not a lot of dead people laying around. I mean, it, it, the Canadians, however, are willing to say this is good enough. If we miss it, well, you're one of those unfortunate souls, but it doesn't come back as retribution against the doctor. Uh, the Dutch are willing to do that. And uh, so what we've got to think about is this. In America at this time, can we reasonably defend not doing the spinal test? Isn't that the question, Rick? Absolutely. Can, can we defend not doing it? It's a test which in competent hands – I mean, I don't know whether I did 1,200 or 1,500 in my career, but I never had a problem with a spinal tap. You never, you never had, had a bloody problem. tap. Well, I've had bloody taps, but I never caused anybody any permanent harm with it. Now, No, I'm uh, talking about if you have a bloody tap, does that, what, what does that do in terms of your interpretation of your results now? That, that, pushes you, that pushes you to another study, Rick. Uh, if, if I've had a bloody tap and I have, uh, there's no question that we, um, that we did do an arteriogram on somebody and found an aneurysm. Uh, and so I think, I think that it's what you're willing to miss and what you feel comfortable with. And some of this may be discussion with the patient as well. Um, you know, it's, it's in the final analysis, it's not you and I that are at risk except from a suit standpoint, the, the only person who has real risk is the patient. What do they want? And I, but I think it's a hard discussion to have with people. And I do push them in the direction uh, at this point of still getting a spinal tap. I'm not sure we're ready to abandon the spinal tap yet with a negative CT. I don't know, Rick, what do you think? Well, basically on my reading of the Canadian literature is they are ready. And in fact, that's what they do. And it's uh, actually, it was surprising that in the Purry study, uh, something like less than 50% of the patients who had a negative CT had a lumbar puncture thereafter. And I subsequently looked at other Canadian papers, and it seems that in Canada, this is uh, routine, that it is not de rigueur that these uh, taps be done by substantial percentages are not getting them. So the border is uh, got two different standards because I think in this country, Greg, uh, I think people would jump all over you if you didn't do a lumbar puncture and say, come on, this is obvious. This is what needs to be done. You screwed up by not doing it. Yep. Um, so I think that there is a dichotomy here and I think that this is going to be very, very interesting. Well, you can always get somebody to say anything in court, but this is a this is a subject where I have lots of good friends. You and I have very good friends uh, who we respect tremendously, who uh, believe in this Canadian approach. Right. Uh, uh, with the with the fourth level CT scans, if it's clean, um, 
we'll send you home and and uh, God love you. And I now I'm I'm what I would like to do is have a meeting with the American Trial Lawyers, Lawyers Association, the AMA, and agree that if the CT scan is negative, we're not going to do an invasive uh, test to determine whether blood exists in, in the CSF. And if we could all agree on that, okay, I guess, I guess I could go with it, but we're not there yet, Rick. Well, this is an extraordinarily complicated issue. There's a whole literature on aneurysms, where they are, the size of them, what's the risk of uh, them rupturing down the road. Uh, and obviously it is not compelling science, but it's all basically kind of statistical uh, uh, reviews in terms of what is your chances of getting into trouble. But in any case... 10% of the bleeds, we never know where they're from. If you've got a small aneurysm, how do you know, and there's multiple small aneurysms, how do you know that's the one that bled? Uh, if you've got a giant aneurysm, nobody's in question about that. If they're, if they're bigger than, than uh, five millimeter kinds of aneurysms, uh, those get operated upon or super coiled or something. But I, I think that it's, it's not a simple science. No, it's not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I just stretch looked at a paper on this yesterday, and it is extraordinarily complex. But in any case, let's move on to a journal article. Oh, no. Uh, okay. There was a series of papers relating to risk management in, of all places, clinical orthopedics and related research. I chose one of them to include because I think it's um, important. We've covered this topic in the past in the abstracts for sure. I believe we've covered it here, but not recently. And it relates to the topic of do the poor sue, sue more? Because I think many people believe that and often use that as a, an excuse for not seeing the poor in terms of follow-up or, uh, or the like. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that I have this prejudice, therefore I'm not going to see them. The only problem is the prejudice is wrong. Well, the dis it's a disinformation uh, which has been spread around. It's another urban myth. And when you think about it, it makes no sense. Those people who use lawyers the most are people who tend to have money. Why? Because they're used to using them for everything. And so, uh, you know, I hope this is the last nail we have to put in this coffin. You know, listen up out there. Poor well, people won't hurt you any more than rich people. Well, this actually uh, suggests that poor people are going to get less of a shake when they make a claim. But let me let, let me just tell you that this paper is summarized in the notes this more uh, this week uh, this month, and it's entitled "Do Poor People Sue Doctors More Frequently?" Confronting Unconscious Bias and the Role of Cultural Competence. This is uh, was in the May. 2012 issue of clinical orthopedics related research. It's from Temple University Law School. I went to medical mm. school there, but and it's and it's from Harvard. These authors are from the kind of decent places. Greg, well, we're obviously not worthy. We're not worthy, Rick. But there, Rick. there are some points the paper makes. Okay, and that uh, I, I I think we just need to hit them one, two, three. Patients in lower socioeconomic groups are less likely than, than uh, advantage patients, patients with money, to sue you. Why? Because it's not how they do business. It's not their daily routine, whereas rich people have, have multiple kinds of lawyers. They know all about this. And I, and I think we need to make some of those points. Juries are also influenced 
by the personal characteristics of the parties involved. That's why there's so many fights uh, before a jury ever sees the patient or the doctor about what they're going to let in as evidence in trial. Uh, so let's say a patient is a drug abuser, or let's say they've been convicted of child molestation. Are we going to let that in as evidence for the jury to consider? Because what they're really trying is a medical malpractice case. But don't think for a second that the jury is not prejudiced by the people who show up in front of them. Right. The personal characteristics of that plaintiff is thought to affect the, the jury. If this is a homeless person and then or maybe they had some even things like they're thieves or they're you know child beaters or the like then the jury's not going to be as sympathetic they also point out that monetary awards for individuals perceived to be underprivileged might not be sufficient to recoup the cost of pursuing the litigation well and exactly finally- I, I mean, that's just logical. I was, I was involved in giving a deposition two days ago. The injured party, the person who was killed, was a doctor. So when the economics expert gets to board, and by the way, the doctor was 34 years of age. Mm. And so when they looked at her income for the last two years and multiplied it out to age 67, do you think that was a big number to put on the board? Uh, and and the, the jury's going to see uh, no question that the pl- I mean the plaintiff counsel couldn't have had a better um, family to take care of nice woman wonderful person great doctor made a lot of money it doesn't get any better than that Rick you know one of the other things is the assertion that the poor are more likely to file non meritorious claims and that also has been disproven as well. So this is obviously not the only article on this, but it really is trying to make it clear that we should not be afraid of these economically disadvantaged patients because of this fear. And honestly, we should not let it be an excuse of our peers that, uh, well, that's, uh, that, that's why I don't see these patients. My, that's, that's, you know that's not true, and I know that's not true. Yeah, it's, it's just not true, and it's, again— the, like the famous line about, well, it's a full moon, all the crazies are out. There was a study done on that. We published that years ago, didn't it, Rick, in, in, yeah. in the EMA? Yeah. And, and basically what it said was, no, the crazies come in, doesn't matter what it is. So uh, the term lunatic is actually a misnomer. Hey, Greg, you wanted to do an, uh, a follow-up on the Jellic case. I don't remember that case. but Oh, uh, well, yes, the Jellic case. So bring us up uh, to speed there, Chief. Let me bring you back to speed. I, uh, this is for all of you who uh, actually been listening for a few years. I presented a case um, about a person who presented with chest pain uh, at an urgent care, which was run by a major hospital. In fact, <laughs> both institutions were run by my group at that time. Um, the woman working in the emergency department uh, was uh, was trained as an internist, not as a an emergency doc, but uh, internists look at chest pain all the time. Patient was sent home. Patient subsequently uh, had a bad outcome. In the trial, the base trial, the circuit court trial, our doctor was acquitted. The plaintiffs came back, went took the uh, case to the appellate court. And they claimed this, 
that it was never disclosed to the jury that uh, the payment mechanism um, was uh, the same. Uh, it was billed out under the emergency department code, yada, yada, yada. And that, a, an, emer- that a, an urgent care should have the same standards and practices as an emergency department. And they quoted the ASEP guidelines on chest pain and said these constituted the standard of care. Well, this is dangerous stuff because the, the appellate court then sent this case back. They were going to send it back to the, uh, to the primary uh, court of record again. And this whole question about can you use the guidelines of a specialty as the standard of care was going to be the issue. Well, this was then immediately appealed to the, to the uh, state of Michigan Supreme Court. And uh, just last week, the state of Michigan Supreme Court came down on our side. Guidelines are guidelines. They do not constitute the standard of care. And there's no reason to believe that an urgent care should be judged at the same standard of performance as an emergency department. This was a precedent-setting case, and the number of people who went amicus with us was huge because all the other medical specialties were afraid that the, that the guidelines put out by their specialty would then be automatically admitted to court. So this is a victory uh, for emergency medicine, uh, and it, because if it happens in one state, It'll be referenced in another. So there you go. There's an update on the Gillick case. You know, Greg, you've mentioned multiple times in the past that the standard of care is um, really determined by testimony of experts. And certainly we've talked about what is the risk of these guidelines being um, brought into these trials. And up until now, uh it was generally viewed that these guidelines would not really hold up because they are guidelines and they can really be torpedoed relatively easily in that they may not be current, they're, uh, not everybody agrees with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would have put my money on the fact that Michigan would have uh, rejected the idea that guidelines are the standard of care for well, whatever I'm, it's worth. Rick, I'm so glad that they did, but understand to a, to a jury – when it looks at the imprimatur, the stamp of the College of Surgeons, the Collins College of Orthopedists, whatever it is, in their mind, it does carry some weight. Uh, and I think that we, we should all be glad that this went in this direction. But I have a warning for you uh, and to anyone else writing guidelines. They need to be properly written so that there's adequate wriggle room for the physician to make decisions. Just like writing your hospital policies, hospital policies can be presented as evidence at the, at the time of trial. And you can't believe the outrageous policies that I have seen uh, that have dinged emergency physicians. Let me just give you one example. Uh, all patients will have a, a temperature when coming in or out of the emergency department, one coming in and one going out. Well, you know what? Do we always do that? What if the patient's had a five-minute visit? What if they've got a sprained ankle? What if they've got this or that? I think that policy should only set the stage for medicine to exist. When it practices medicine, it's not going in the right direction. 
Okay, great. Uh, let's see here. What do we else got? Uh, let's see. Oh, letters time. Actually, they're not, they're not we letters. We get letters. Sales. Yes. I want to do one, actually. Uh, actually, we have a couple good ones here. Yeah, we do. Robert Hutton. Can I summarize? Yes, please. A methadone OD patient gets admitted to the ICU. The patient is awake after Narcan and denies suicidal intent and wants to sign out. The intensivist who admits the patient to the ICU wants to let the patient go, but the ICU nurse feels uncomfortable with it and calls the ER, and the nurse manager in the ER says something like, what, are you crazy? Um, the intensivist gets indignant, discharges the patient, and makes trouble for the nurse. Uh, any advice? Uh, I, uh, I will leave out the adjectives here uh, reflecting <laughs> the behavior of the intensivist uh, that Dr. Uh, uh, Hutton included in his piece. So what do you think, Greg? What's the issue here? Well, there are several issues. There needs to be a bright line in the sand when a patient is moved to the ICU and there's a doctor who's accepted the care, uh, he or she is in charge of that patient. Why someone in the ICU would be calling down to the emergency department? You see, on that basis, do we have to practice medicine for the entire hospital? Um, do I think the, the internist judgment was poor? Yeah, all of us have, have we've made people wake up. And uh, as you remember, you know, 10 minutes later, they're down again. They're flat. They're out. You, uh, a little bit of Narcan can be a dangerous thing. If the internist doesn't know that, that's a problem. But why is the emergency department being consulted? Why don't they call the chief of cardiology? Why don't they call the chief of medicine? Why don't they do other things? I don't know why the emergency department will be sucked back in on well, this kind of case. The nurse in the ICU was concerned that what was going to happen might should not have happened, and uh, the quickest person to uh, address the issue, what might have been after hours, was to call their nurse manager down the ER to get a little um, reassurance that what was going to happen is okay or get reassurance that what was happening was not okay, and then maybe they could take additional action. Um, this, is, my- this is not the chain of command, Rick. An ICU nurse has a nursing director, and then there's the VP of nursing for the hospital. Um, I, ju- I just think we're mixing uh, lines of authority here. And what I'm really afraid of is m- mixing lines of responsibility. I mean, does the nurse now expect that the emergency doc is going to write a counter order to the uh, intensivist? I mean, what's, what's the emergency doc sitting four floors lower supposed to do about this well my view of this is kind of simple this is a patient who is awake alert not uh, uh, voicing any su- suicide uh, suicidal thoughts and that he can go home if he is discharged properly using all of the AMA things that we've talked about ad nauseum on this on the series the fact of the matter is What's the difference here if we had a chest pain patient who came in who had an elevated troponin and says, no, I'm not coming in, doc. I don't want to come into the hospital. People die in the hospital and goes home. As long as that person has capacity, which you've documented, they are free to go home as long as you've appropriately told them of the risks of uh, of doing that. So I have no idea. What are you going to do? Hold this person against their will uh, who, yeah, they can go under again and 
if they know that and that they may stop breathing, that's that's their choice. You can't hold somebody against their will here. That's my two uh, cents. Well, my two cents would be this. If they went out, walked into the middle of the street, and their and their opiate started to overtake them again, you'd be in tough shape because they would ask you on the stand, you're aware, aren't you, doctor, that there can be transient effects of Narcan that can wear off and the patient's underlying opiate will then seize them again. Uh, and there isn't an experienced emergency doctor who hasn't seen that time and again. Uh, and I would have to say, yes, I'm aware that that can happen. I mean, um, I, th I think we have to be a little bit practical here that we've all held people down who we gave too much narc uh, Narcan to so they actually fully woke up. See, that was the mistake. Just give them enough so they can breathe. Uh, and then, because you really don't want to talk to them anyway. I mean, come on, let's just be honest. And, well, yeah, and, but, but in this case, they woke them up. Um, you know, if there's family members there, do whatever you can do absolutely. to get somebody to, to say, let's take care of them here. Right. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But when push comes to shove, if we're talking about legal precedents here, I don't think you can hold this person if, as long as you've done the AMA crossed every T and dotted every I because the same thing could happen with somebody with a chest pain. He said, sir, you could drop dead uh, in the parking lot if you choose to leave now. I said, I, okay, doc, fine. I'm leaving. Yeah, but at least, dropping dead, at least dropping dead in the parking lot is not the predictable case. When we know they've got a big opiate uh, load on board, we know they're going to go back down again or I mean at a very high level. So it's it's not just sort of difficult, it's real difficult. There's a second part uh, to Dr. Hutton's uh, email, it could be a little tougher. Um, the hospitals intensivists think the EPs should manage the ICU holds in the ED. Shoot me. God, God, <laughs> if you're waiting to get patients in and they've accepted them, let them come down and get involved with the care. We can only do so much. And we, we have very good papers in the database that say when intensive care patients are held in emergency departments, they don't do as well. Does that summarize it, Rick? Oh, yeah. In fact, in this year's course, uh, EMA course, which I expect all of you will be going to, Peter Vicellio wrote a chapter summarizing all of this stuff regarding the harms associated with holding patients in the emergency department, access block, ICU patients having longer stays and doing worse when they're held in the ER, uh, you know, six hours or more. Uh, and these doctors, Dr. Hutton's, um, was very candid. He said they don't feel competent to be managing ICU patients for protracted periods in the ER. They said, we're really busy. We've got a full plate as well. The hospital bylaws don't allow us to take care of admitted patients, and um, the chief medical officer wants a decision about who's going to take care of these patients. And um, what's your opinion here, Greg? Yeah, uh, the, the, um, the internists or the um, intensivists uh, work on an interesting concept. It's called uh, fee for no service. Uh, if, if this patient has been moved to a physical different area of the, of the hospital, uh, if if they've been admitted, if it's expected that they're going to take care of it, let's let's review this. 
80% of what we see goes home, 20% gets admitted. But the more you have admitted patients who are critical, and some of them, quite frankly, go beyond our competency as emergency docs. I mean, I'm real good at certain things, but I think at a certain point in time, I don't do inpatient medicine anymore. And they may actually have something to bring to the care of these patients. And one thing they certainly have is if you're managing an ICU kind of situation, you have a little more time to concentrate on critically ill patients. And I think that that's, that's different than, than what you and I do in the emergency department. The intensivist said, listen, we can't be two places at once. We're up here in the ICU. You're holding that ICU patient down in the ER. I can't get down there because I'm, I'm seeing some other patients. Um, I think, you know, ER docs have used the same uh, argument in terms of taking care of codes on the floor. Uh, but, but these intensivists are there 24-7. And uh, I do think that they need to take responsibility for these cases and just make a way for it to happen. The chief medical officer of this hospital should say, okay, here's what's going to happen. The intensivists are in charge of the care of patients being held in the ER who are ICU patients. And Dr. Hutton also noted that his group was willing to help out you know, if there were certain situations where the doctor couldn't get down here quickly enough or something to that effect, but they don't want total responsibility for these cases. And I don't blame them one bit. And I think the CMO can settle this because both well, it, work for the hospital. If the, uh, I just want the, C the chief medical officer and the hospital board to make sure that when they are sued, they have a lot of room at the defense table. Because everybody's going to have a seat there and, and uh, there's going to be trouble. Everyone expects that if the patient is, is going south quickly, starts to arrest, has respiratory problems, the ER doc will get back involved in the case. Um, but we want encouragement to get those patients moved upstairs where they can be properly cared for, where the nursing ratios are different. Um, I, I think that, that to maintain critically ill patients in the department um, is not in the best interests of anyone. Well, and certainly not in the best interest of the patient. We have multiple articles suggesting that ICU patients in the ER held for protracted periods of time, generally we're talking you know, in excess of four hours, that they will do worse. They will, and it's a consistent kind of thing. Uh, their length of stay in the hospital, once they ultimately get into the place, is going to be uh, be longer. Their outcomes are not going to be as uh, as good. Uh, their mortality rate is higher. We have a papers that say that, and so that kind of stuff should be put under the nose of the chief medical officer and say, here are the consequences of holding these patients in the ICU. And let me let me spank let me spank our emergency medicine. Um, uh, fellow colleagues here a little bit, because I've seen misuse of the ICU. If you have a patient who is terminal or near terminal, none of those patients should be going to ICUs. Do not flood the ICU with people who are about and, and expected to die. The ICU should be for people who have a reasonable probability of getting better with ICU care. And uh, I've seen that happen as well, where, where emergency docs have kind of pushed patients in that direction. Oh, the family wants this and that. You know, sometimes we have to let them know that they're not going to get better. They are going to die. 
and and uh, we shouldn't abuse limited resources. Well, there's no question, Greg, that we need to learn about comfort care. Uh, and this is the big push for emergency physicians to become we- more aware of treatment at the end of life and being willing to call a spade a spade and know how to provide comfort care and to how to transition patients and families over from care that is supposed to make them better to the acknowledgement that no care is going to make you better, sir. And I'm, my job is to make you no, no, no pain, uh, help, help your breathing, um, relieve your anxiety, those kinds of things. We need to know how to do that, and we need to know when it's time. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. The best phrase sometimes is not start the code, but dominus vobiscum. Uh, <laughs> hey, Greg. Rick, yeah. yeah. Aren't you Episcopalian? Um, I, I thought, well, that's darn close to being a Catholic. Are you kidding? That's a Catholic who flunked Latin, and I didn't flunk Latin. Or some people say it's a Catholic with money, but what can I tell you? <laughs> uh, yeah. By the way, if you haven't been to the Catholic, you know, I, we're a Catholic family. If you haven't been to the Catholic Church, Rick, lately, which you probably haven't, uh, they look like Presbyterians these days. It was unbelievable. What, uh, what next? Although I, I was the first altar boy, the first altar boy in, in St. Genevieve's Church in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I remember we had a 630 Mass and an 8 o'clock Mass. And God forbid you were assigned the week of 630 Mass, because I remember in January walking up the center of Bethlehem Pike with two feet of snow so I could be the altar boy for the 630 Mass. Holy now tell smoke. us it was uphill both ways. Rick. That's right. Go, go ahead. Tell us the story. <laughs> no, All right, I just did. The, All right. Do the next case, Rick. Well, I'd like to get into the emails for sure. Um, and there was another one that I thought was very important from Robert Barron of Bar- uh, Banner Hospital in uh, in Phoenix, and it deals with MRIs and um, getting fast MRIs for lesions that you think are compressing the spinal cord. Unfortunately, we don't have time, Robert, to get into that case this month. I promise you it will be the first case we do next month because I think it's really, really important with uh, what you're telling us in terms of a new technique that will quickly get an MRI of the spine in 15 minutes instead of the normal hour and a half. But please, I don't want to not do it justice. And so we're going to stop here. Greg's going to do his wine and we'll pick it up next month. Yeah. And we, we have another uh, uh, email here from Bill Hampton as well. And Bill, we're sorry we can't get to it, but uh, we'll tag this on. And next month, both of these will be done first. So we move on to wine of the month. And I am, um, I, uh, I have to acknowledge right up front, I get no money from anybody. If you'd like to send me wine or money, I'll take it. I have, you know, I have no principles on this, but I don't get any money. But I was doing my wine search uh, this month, and I was out at a place that, oh, maybe some of you heard of, called Costco. And uh, they have now become uh, one of the largest wine distributors in the world if not the largest. And they had some incredible buys. Now, um, most of you know that Francis Ford Coppola uh, was a filmmaker who got sort of dabbled in the wine industry. It's almost the reverse. He's a winery that now he occasionally makes a film. But the truth is their vineyards, which were producing some stuff that I kind of considered crap for a while, uh, have totally turned around 
And I got to buy at Costco for 11 bucks the 2010 uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. It was yummy. 11 bucks a bottle. Now, not only is that a great price, but when I looked at my wine shop where I frequently get things, it would have been five bucks more a bottle there. For those of you who, who think that uh, they only, they only uh, stock mediocre stuff at Costco, that's wrong. They had racks that ran from 200 bucks a bottle uh, down to, you know, Yellowtail. Uh, which is, you know, four bucks a tank car load or something. But they had a great variety, and every stop along the way when I compared it to the prices in my, in my boutique wine shop, they were cheaper. So if you've got one in your area, um, try at 11 bucks a bottle uh, the Coppola uh, 2010 Cabernet Sauvignon. It is a great wine uh, at a great price. Well, there you go. I, I must admit, Costco is one of my absolute favorite stores. Uh, it's a great place to buy 10 cans of corn and uh, all yeah. kinds of stuff that you might need yeah. in the uh, yeah. famine. Well, here's, here's the point for our listeners. When you're getting your uh, 84 rolls of toilet paper in one gigantic thing, stick a couple of bottles of wine. And they had a lot of wine, which you could buy just one bottle of. You, you didn't have to buy like... Uh, again, a, uh, a entire pallet of the stuff. You you could get one bottle, and um, I think they're onto something. They're going to be a major player from now on in in the uh, exp- in the higher class wine business. Okay, Greg, that is February 2013. Uh, I appreciate your doing this with us on uh, Skype. It's just always a little bit of a challenge because I can't look into your beady eyes while you're talking. <laughs> but uh, uh, all right. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye.